Shall I go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sailors fighting in the dance hall. Oh man, look at those cavemen go. It's the freakiest show. Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. Regular listeners might be a bit confused right now because things are different, and it's not just because it's a brand new mini-series. That is right. I am your host, Ben Phillips. I'm welcomed, as always, by Matthew Waters. Hey, this is weird. We're, we're switching roles because that's fun, and you're the big watchman person. So now you're the host, and I'm the talent. Yes, but also the reason that this episode is going to be a little different is because we're not actually launching the main miniseries yet. The main miniseries will be covering HBO's Watchmen series by Damon Lindelof. But to start it with, we thought we'd make you read some books. <laughs> we have read a lot of books in the last week and, and a bit. Two weeks, something like that. Yeah, we also watched a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of issues. 30 issues of comic books. Yeah, and I watched a three and a half hour cut of the movie. I didn't, because I'm sorry. Yeah, I watched it in several chunks, uh, so that it couldn't just permeate into my brain fully. Yeah. yeah. But what is the name of this miniseries, I hear you ask? Nothing Ever Ends. It is. Nothing Ever Ends, the final line of the graphic novel from Dr. Manhattan. Yes. And A also deep cut that everyone will recognise. <laughs> but also because, as you're going to find out in this episode, there's a lot of stuff that's related to Watchmen that's come out in the 30 years since the comic book came out. Yeah, no episode is going to justify the title more than this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think right off the bat, something that needs to be acknowledged is, on this website, a couple of years ago, myself and Mike Thomas covered the Watchmen film, and I deeply, I don't remember everything I said, but I think I regret everything I said on it. Uh, Because (laughs) as I told Ben, during reading this again, being a couple of years older, having read a couple of years more comics, etc., giving it my full attention, and watching the movie again, my feelings on the movie have dramatically diminished, because I've spent all this time being like, ah, it's it's fine, it's no worse, you know, it, it's not the comic, but it's still good, and the comic's a little bit overrated, and now I'm like, oh no, no, this might be the greatest comic ever written, and that movie is, at best, quite stylish, but completely missing the point of large swaths of it and watching the three and a half hour version did not do it any (laughs) favours you are still team Dr. Manhattan is a bomb though I am not on Team Squid, yes. Do you want to just address that immediately? Or... Yeah, so I... Because that is so central to all of this. I am firmly on Team Squid. I think Team Squid's one of those, like, it's the most kind of Golden Age superhero-y element of Watchmen, the comic book, in that yeah. it's just, like, random, let's fake an alien invasion to end this comic book. Spoilers for the end of Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, but it is very important to the actual TV show, so I think it is very important that we get that up front. 
I think the first time I read it, I was a bit like, huh, I'm not sure what that is. But the more I've had time to kind of stew on it and see what it meant, it's just one of the kind of most fun elements of Watchmen is to see this kind of simmering along in the background. I mean, it, it's Starro, basically, for yes. like, like Justice League's big villain. I, I understand it. I understand that the entire comic is a giant meta-reflection on Golden Age comic books and tropes and subverting them and what better trope than a big giant tentacled alien monster, and I get it all. I just personally think that the idea of making it look like it was Dr. Manhattan that did it all, the one person everybody in the world is afraid of, the big nuclear deterrent, it it gives Ozymandias, it keeps him present in the story because you know from the beginning, oh, I've been working with John on the energy crisis, because I actually think... You know, I have a great many positive things to say about Watchmen, but Ozymandias kind of vanishes for large chunks of the book, and then he's suddenly very heavy at the end. And I just think, you know, it's fundamentally, as well as being a big comic book, golden age, blah, 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 it is also a giant Cold War story. And Mm. I think it's a fitting ending to have a giant, like, nuclear attack type deal happen. I mean, I'm not as, like, staunchly on that team as I have been. I still lean more in that direction. I'm 100% sure that's not why Zack Snyder did it. I think he just thought, hmm, that sounds expensive and I think it's silly, so I'm going to film something else. Yeah, I think that's that's the main issue with the movie, is Zack Snyder. A lot of the decisions he made seem to come from a place of not understanding what the source material actually is and just thinking it's this kind of grimdark story in which superheroes are, have yeah. like sexual dysfunction and like it's really violent and all these different things which isn't what the story's about and i think a more interesting director would have done something like let's examine the idea of nationality for someone who is fundamentally a man without a nation a man without a nation and like it's that kind of thing where i think it falls down is that the whole thing in the comic book is they're like john is the he is the superman and he's american is the line from the comic book god Um, is (laughs) yes god is american um and it's that weird thing where like that's kind of not present in the movie and i feel like that kind of does need to be present if you're going to examine uh the the nuclear deterrent turning its back on the country that he's ostensibly from i don't know he does i i can't remember what is and isn't in the original versus the ultimate cut but he does say all the stuff about how my red planet means more to me than your blue one does. Obviously, that's a line from the book. I think... I know that the conversation between John and Laurie on Mars is extended in the Ultimate Cut, and I think that line is restored. But, I mean, they do say the whole God exists and he, he's American and all that. And I, I have to confess, like, when the Watchmen movie came out, I had never heard of Watchmen. And, you know, seeing these words, one of the greatest novels of all time, I I think Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Novels Ever, Watchmen is on there. It's one of, like, three comic books. It's like this, Mouse, and something else, I think. So I I was like, what on earth is this? And I went and I saw it, and I was like, oh, this is so different. And I, I, I was like, oh, cool, it's like superheroes, but it's... I hate using these terms, and I'm trying to dunk on myself here, but, you know, it's, like, for grown-ups, it's adult. It's got, like, like impotence and, and, and violence and, and all these different things. And I was like, oh, that's so cool and fresh and such a different take, and it's like a grim, dark detective story at places. So for a long time, that was what I thought Watchmen really was, like, the book and the film. Like, you know, that's its big thing. And it took reading a hell of a lot of comics, <laughs> and I guess growing up a bit, 
to actually come back around on it and appreciate that like while all of that stuff is in there and may have been revolutionary in some ways at the time in terms of something from one of the big publishers i know there have been a lot of independent comics that have gotten into more adult material but while all of that is there that is just one of many elements of what make the watchmen book so damn good like it's also just so meticulously crafted in a way that comic books almost never are where they are just, you know, most comics are just an ongoing, like, here's this month's issue, it will go on forever and ever and ever. But even miniseries, like 12-issue comics that are conceived as a, with a definitive beginning, middle, and end, they still aren't put together as well as Watchmen is. No, I, I think that's the thing. And, like, we need to give credit to, like, what is Watchmen? It's a comic book by Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, and colorist John Higgins. It's a kind of a masterpiece, but it's also a masterpiece that kind of sneaks up on you, I feel, if you don't know comic books. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, when I read through it for the first time just curiously like picked it up had seen the movie like multiple times thumbed through it i was like okay i mean whatever and then after reading a lot more comics and better comics would be the other part of it um i came to appreciate it but it was your first ever comic book right it was yeah this was like i don't i don't know what i don't even know what exactly drove me to do it, it was like, i was probably doing those things where reading lists on the internet and kind of seeing this one is being heralded it was also damon lindelof i think he said like there were three books that like massively influenced lost it was watchman it was the stand which is another one of my favorite books and the illuminatus trilogy which i've never actually got around to reading okay. um so i picked it i picked this up explicitly because damon lindelof recommended it to me yeah and it does <laughs> say on i don't know if it does on on the copy i have which i think is the one that is most in circulation uh one of the big quotes on the back cover is from damon lindelof and he says the greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced very fitting that he would get to do the tv show that we're going to be discussing i mean that's the thing is his name has been on the back of this book for 10 years plus at this point yeah so yeah but yeah i mean this being your first this is a bad first comic ben like my first one ever was civil war which is another bad first comic and also just a bad comic but (laughs) yeah i mean like my my first comic i think i went on to do better things after that because i did like my first like selection of comics were watchman scott pilgrim fables volume one sandman and why the last man so like you obviously started off firmly in like the superhero genre i started off with what was on the shelf (laughs) nearby the counter where i was standing behind thinking i have an employee discount i will buy civil war and fear itself and you know all those big ones the first wave of what if quote-unquote normal shops started selling quote-unquote graphic novels because i fucking hate the term graphic novel yeah i just picked up all the big ones and i was like i don't know what's going on but here we go this seems fun and then i would branch out i would find my favorites and and branch out and start taking recommendations and start reading indie stuff and and yeah for you to start with watchmen with no (laughs) kind of context to what it's about yeah i mean uh, i feel like a lot of people do that is that they will read watchmen as their first comic book and obviously you can tell it's a well-crafted story, but the amount of times that I hear people kind of talk about Watchmen as if it's like this, oh yeah, it was good, it was a good solid story, I've seen it done better in other places. Um, <laughs> which is they're kind probably of, copying Watchmen. <laughs> they're probably copying Watchmen, and also none of them, as you say, are this well-constructed. Like, yeah. this is, it's like clockwork, and some people don't agree yeah. with how like clockwork this series is. They kind of find the fact that, like, it's 12 issues, every page is nine panel. Every issue comes about five pages of kind of just solid text of world building. Like, it can feel a little emotionally cold and distant to people. But, like, once you read other comic books and you kind of sit down with this and you go, like, the level of craft on display in this is kind of insane. That as a technical achievement, you can't help but kind of go, like, this is kind of incredible. 
And that's the thing, like, I was ready, I don't know, six weeks ago to march into this episode and be like, right, your big thing about how this is a giant, like, reflection on the golden age, it's a giant parody, it's tropes, it's satire, it's playing into all these historical characters that a lot of people don't even, like, know exist. I mean, the question is quite famous. Blue Beetle is probably the most famous of them. The, the the big Charlton Six that they're based on. So the comedian is Peacemaker, Rorschach is The Question, Night Owl is Blue Beetle, Ozymandias is Peter Cannon, Dr. Manhattan is Captain Atom, and Silk Spectre is Nightshade. These are all old characters that DC bought, but they were from Charlton Comics and all that. And they're all being parodied and twisted, and it's all a giant, you know, Alan Moore's thesis on comic books. It's reactionary to comic books. And I think something you always said to me is, the book is doing that, the film is reacting to nothing. And I was ready to come in here and say, but the average person has no idea it's doing any of those things. So does that even count as a bonus point? And it's like, I still think that is a point that like you can't get mad at someone for not knowing any of that picking it up reading it straight and that being lost on them and i was ready to say so therefore it's a giant failing but i think it's after rereading it again i think it is just one of many aspects the same with the like mature tone i think when you know that it gives you a little something extra but i still think it's good without that in the same way that mr miracle by tom king which uses nine panel grid and clearly has a bit of Watchmen influence as well. Every issue of that begins with the the bubbles, the narration bubbles from the original Mr. Miracle comic book. You would not be expected to know that and recognise it on site, but when you realise that, it's like, oh, that's a nice little touch, and it is playing with this old, old comic book. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing where this has so much going on that you can target any one of these individual elements and really put a spotlight on it and praise it for that thing, but I don't think it is reliant on any of them because, I mean, I still dug it not knowing that all of these characters are giant, like... I mean, he wanted to use those original characters and he got talked out of it into creating originals and when you actually look at them side by side with who they're supposed to be it's like oh yeah okay that's very obvious that this is this person and this is this person and everything i do think it's interesting that when i heard that they were all these things and even probably before that i assumed night owl was supposed to be batman because probably because of snyder because he makes the suit a little bit less campy and just the way that batman has come to be sort of coded over time with the sort of the darkness and the violence and the gadgets and all of that it i do think it is interesting that like at the time this was written batman was nothing like that really so you wouldn't be confused back in the day but these days i think blue beetle has kind of faded out of prominence and there's been you know multiple blue beetles since then and who he is has kind of changed and batman has kind of become I'm sure there are still people that think that Night Owl is Batman, but... I, mean, I think there are elements of it, and I think later Watchmen stories have leaned into Night Owl as Batman a bit yeah. more explicitly. I mean, obviously, people still do uh, Doctor Manhattan as Superman. I mean, Action, Action Comics number one is a literal plot point in this series. But it's one of those things where, as you say, Alan Moore is renowned for kind of taking previous pieces of comic work and kind of twisting them and making something new of them. He did it with Swamp Thing. He did it with Miracle Man or Marvel Man, depending on how you want to get into that knotty issue. Like his final comic ever was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, which, which is... A, a cavalcade of, of public domain characters that he's using. Yeah, uh, except he always does something interesting with them. And mm. it d- doesn't require... I don't need to have read Dracula to understand what's going on in the League comic books. I don't need to know that Swamp Thing used to be just a monster, whatever, before this kind of happened. It's 
Didn't he make Harry Potter the Antichrist? He did make Harry Potter the Antichrist. And, like, and he's mentally ill and thinks he's magic, or, or he actually is, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> and can you guess what his magic wand was, Matt? <laughs> was it his penis? Bro? It was his penis. He shoots <laughs> lightning from his penis. <laughs> Who doesn't? I do like that he is this grumpy man that is like, this is the thing, Watchmen, huge, so influential. Been parodied, been indirectly, like, influenced things, been continued on, all of this, and he is furious about it. He's furious about every adaptation of all of his stuff. Then he does turn around and his living is made of, of, of taking other characters. But it is important to say that the contract for Watchmen, I think it's a very important piece of context for all the stuff we're going to discuss today, that he was given a contract that was essentially, when Watchmen goes out of print, you will have the rights to these characters. Because you haven't done the Charleston characters, you will get rights to Watchmen and what these characters are. Both you and Dave Gibbons will share this. Watchmen was so successful that Watchmen has never been out of print since 1986 <laughs> or whatever. DC in perpetuity will hold the rights onto Watchmen they will never let this book fall out of print and Alan Moore is and obviously Alan Moore got completely fucked over by this it's one of the big reasons why he left DC around this time but yeah so Alan Moore royally fucked over by this he doesn't like DC there's a story later on in his career where like he started working for Image Comics doing like fun little independent things which include League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and then DC came in and bought the imprint at Image that he was working with and he stayed for about uh, he stayed for a little while longer even though going like I don't like DC I don't like DC they're monsters they've stolen a lot of my work he managed to stay with them long enough and then eventually their editorial got involved when he had like a faux advert for a vibrator um, <laughs> in an issue of League and then he was like fuck this no i wanted complete independence i've gone and then just left and didn't come back and like finish some of the comics or the rest of it he is a grumpy man but he's also one of those like he's also kind of a genius and speaking of him being a grumpy man this book is full of somewhat problematic stuff i only knew of him as being a grumpy man i didn't actually know any of his politics and you reassured me he is as left as it gets he is like don't vote because the we need to like have a French Revolution, like he's that far left. Yeah, like he um, he he publicly came out and said he was going to vote in the most recent election for Jeremy Corbyn because he was like Jeremy Corbyn is the first politician to ever come along whose politics I can even slightly get along with. But the thing is, th I think this is another part of it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the book is I think particularly Rorschach. Like there is a, and I think this will be relevant with the TV show having, and we should say this up front: I have seen none of the show yet. I've seen the trailers ahead of time. You've seen all of the show, and you've even podcasted about it on this site. But I'm going in just knowing stuff from the trailers. I, I think a certain sector of people, repeatedly, like generationally, have uplifted Rorschach to be like, oh, he's so fucking cool. And noir detectives are cool. However, he is an incredibly problematic character. And I think Alan Moore wrote him for you to not like him. And I think he's even given interviews where, like, he completely, like, goes off on anyone who thinks Rorschach is a great person. Like, by pinning this stuff onto characters that you are writing to be unlikable, you are kind of taking a stance against the things they're saying. Joker, I think, treats the Joker to be a heroic character like he gets a big dance montage at the end and it's like yay go you murdering people and being an incel and all of this whereas i don't think rorschach is written heroically and the various characters that are dropping you know the f slur and are being racist and sexist and all of this they are written to be bad characters <laughs> but unfortunately with all things there will be people who are going to you know identify with certain things i think it is interesting that like from what i can tell from the show there is basically a big gang of people who wear rorschach masks and are like the alt-right basically <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, not not to spoil too much, but that is more or less the gist. It's yeah. very interesting. Like again, it's Damon Lindelof is someone who obviously understands Watchmen. There are a couple of people who work in and around the industry who obviously deeply understand what Watchmen was trying to do. The issue with Watchmen is, along with another seminal 1986 comic book, it kind of broke comics. This and The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller are kind of held up as two things that made superhero comics grow up, in quotation marks, and (laughs) kind of issued in the 90s where it was all a little bit more extra and all a little bit more dark and... It's arguably one of the worst things to have happened to comics. Even though both of them are really good stories, they're both stories that were fundamentally misunderstood for why they're good, and it kind of took comics almost 20 years, really, to get back to what people wanted. I'd throw a killing joke in there as well, which is fitting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, but also that's the one that Alan Moore's just like, I hate killing joke. Well, exactly, yeah, but so many people are like, oh my god, killing joke is a masterpiece, and it's informed Joker and Batman ever since then. And Alan Moore himself is like, oh, I hate it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good. But yeah, it's that thing, and it's an issue with like the movie in particular, is that Zack Snyder feels like someone who read these comic books when he was young and kind of absorbed the, the rule of cool stuff uh, from this and was like, oh, isn't it cool when Rorschach goes and breaks all that guy's fingers in that bar? Yeah. The, the big, the slow motion violence stuff, reveling in the violence, like zooming in and going in slow-mo as Night Owl puts a guy's bone through his arm. And it's it's a tricky thing, like, it's two things, I think. One is it's an inherent disadvantage of the medium, because that violence is on the page in Watchmen, but it's done in, you know, montage still images that are intercut with other things. Whereas showing a violent act in full video with, like, all of the effects and the sound and all that is inherently far more violent than a still image is ever going to be. And then secondly, I think Zack Snyder just really fucking loves slow motion violence. I mean, that's the thing, is I've, I've been watching the the Vengeance trilogy, like, Park Chan-wook's kind of, like, seminal 2000s, uh, incredibly gory, like, old boy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, all those kind of movies. Incredibly violent movies, like, people having their tendons sliced and, and electrocution <laughs> and people shitting themselves as they die. And it looks gorgeous. But you also feel repulsed. And I don't get that with Watchmen. There is no moment when watching Watchmen that I feel like, this is a good filmmaker shooting violence to make me feel something. Instead, mm. it's just, this is a this is a filmmaker who thinks this looks cool and isn't doing anything to make me feel like the impact of this or that I should be viscerally affected by what's going on on screen. He even tosses in lines like, when uh, Dan and Laurie are going to go break Rorschach out of prison, they're like, oh, this will be fun. And they mm. have that little look at each other before they do all the violence and they, they do a little smirk and everything. It's like, there's what's on the page that you're at a disadvantage when trying to adapt. And then there's you just piling on and adding something that's not there. That like There is the whole thing of like Dan in his everyday retired life is an impotent man. He is a bit chubby. You know, he look. I think someone said that he's sort of drawn to look like if Clark Kent weren't Superman and hit like his 40s, you know. <laughs> And Laurie is this beautiful woman who he desires, and they they try to have sex, and he's he can't get it up or whatever, and they they just cuddle and go to sleep. And then when they, you know, he has his dream about them being naked, and then they take each other's skin off, and they're wearing the costumes, and then they die, and then they go out and do some superhero shit, and suddenly he can get his fuck on. That is sort of an interesting story, but like Snyder is like taking that and the violence and... yeah he, he makes night owl seem like he's horny for violence yeah. rather than horny for like costume crime fighting 
which and, is like, feeling powerful and feeling like he matters and like can make a difference, you know. And like in his everyday life, he doesn't feel like that. And that's that's the thing. Not like I've got a boner for murder. Let's <laughs> let's go fuck. Like and then adding the hallelujah stinger over the top is the icing on the cake. Especially when it's the original Leonard Cohen one, which is like the least used version of this song. One that's kind of like barely recognizable to most audiences who are used to the kind of Jeff Buckley version. And it's just so weird and unintentionally hilarious and not good i I think he's zeroed in on certain parts and and i think there are parts that the movie does incredibly well like the bob dylan montage at the beginning i mean the the three bob dylan songs that they used in this movie are probably the three best music choices yeah yeah yeah. and like he's very he should just make fucking music videos he's very good at making music videos but it's it's the stuff in between it's it's the certain, like, little changes to make characters... Like, Dr. Manhattan seems a little bit more mean, a little bit more bitchy, and instead of... Like, Billy Crudup is is trying to do, like, he's completely disengaged and, like, doesn't care anymore and all that, but he comes across as weirdly, like, kind of throwing a strop a little bit, like, say hi to Dan for me, and all that sort of stuff. And it's just like, yeah, I... Ugh. And the group are called the Watchmen. <laughs> it's it's not good. I mean, Zack Snyder's one of those directors who his best comic book adaptation is 300. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Which is the one that he's kind of most in tune with what the comic book is. Mm. He isn't in tune with what Watchmen is. He isn't in tune with Superman. He isn't in tune with Batman. Yeah. Right. Shall we discuss Watchmen, the 12 issues? Uh, Yeah, sure. Cool, so Watchmen is one of those things where when you read comic books, sometimes you forget that an issue should be a story. In some ways, comics as a medium is most like television, in that each issue should feel like you've satisfied something, and a big issue with comic books in the kind of last 20 years or so, and part of that is to put up to like Brian Michael Bendis and the work that he did on things like Ultimate Spider-Man, where there's a decompression and like events take place over a longer period of time in each issue, and so 20 pages will be like a tiny tiny fraction of the story is that Watchmen every single issue can be succinctly kind of described in like a a line or a sentence I think Matt's got a preparation for them or do you want me to get my one up no no I got it here and I thought it was really interesting because we we sort of were texting back and forth about this while I was reading them uh, because we were like in some disagreement about what happened we we laid them out and then not to jump ahead, but we're going to look at some other stuff in less detail than Watchmen itself, um, particularly Doomsday Clock, which is like the official quote unquote sequel to Watchmen. Uh, and that also has 12 issues. And I tried to do the same for Doomsday Clock, and it just doesn't work as well. But for, for Watchmen, the structure, issue one, which I think is the greatest issue one I've ever read in my life. Rorschach investigates the death of the comedian, issue two, the funeral, issue three, Dan and Laurie, issue four, Manhattan on Mars, issue five, Rorschach is arrested, issue six, Rorschach in prison slash getting psychoanalyzed, uh, issue seven, Silk Spectre and Night Owl, distinct from Dan and Laurie, issue eight, Jailbreak, issue nine, John and Laurie on Mars, issue ten, Rorschach and Night Owl investigate Ozymandias, uh, issue eleven, they confront Ozymandias, and issue twelve, the squid and the wrap-up. And it's that 
level of simplicity of just point, 12 bullet points, none of those were long sentences, and some of those I made longer than they needed to be even, is incredible. Like, you can see that whole story fitting together. But also, if you've read this book before, when I say those things to you, you can perfectly imagine the self-contained story that goes with all 12 of those. And it's it's insane. Like, I, I don't actually know how he... Like, the level of planning that must have gone into this is is unreal. I mean, I, I, when, when I was talking, Watchmen is what is it? It's like a clock. Every single piece kind of fits together perfectly, and it can feel emotionally cold. But like, there are only two moments where I kind of went like, "Oh, that's something that they obviously didn't intend to do because they stopped doing it later on." Is that the first two issues have got uses where there's more than nine panels on a page, and it's kind of distracting when you know just how carefully constructed it is. But then the final ten issues of it don't break the format whatsoever and so you can tell that they were still kind of making stuff up as they went along in in some regards but obviously everything is so carefully constructed and everything comes together so succinctly at the end and yes there are like story threads that still exist that you could pull on like the book ends on a literal cliffhanger with (laughs) with Rorschach's journal being dumped in the in the laps of like a right-wing news organization but like you don't need to know what happens there it's just like that's an intriguing thing that could yeah. completely blow up this universe. But... Or, it, or it could never see the light of day. Like This is a fanatical right-wing publication, and they've taken it from what they call, even they call it, the crank file, and a very junior staff member has been told to get it, and it could never run. It could run and no one ever pays any attention, but it's just a little thing that's like, oh, there's something. Yeah, and it's, it's one of my favourite parts, is that every issue has like a little chunk of in-world back matter material. Um, yes. And the one that's kind of like an article from the New Frontiersman, which is this right-wing publication, is the one that's kind of like completely lays out like <laughs> all of the scientists and artists who've got to be going missing to build the giant squid. It's like laid out in this thing, but it's like no one's going to believe it because it's from this particular yeah. like, news publication. Wherein he also defends the KKK yes. for having noble origins and sort of defend, you know, big up the superheroes because they're like taking the law into their own hands versus superheroes are fascists you know it's this argument that we've all had about superheroes forever and ever and ever is batman a fascist yes he is but he's an enjoyable one so shut up i mean that's the thing there's a a level of like a weirdness of the people who make comic books will almost always lean left there are a couple of obviously like right-leaning people who work in comic books but most creative artistic people tend to lean left and they are writing in this genre that is inherently fascist and taking the law into our own hands and it's why some of the more interesting stories are more about kind of defending people and being inclusive but it's this just interesting dichotomy that's at the very heart of all comic books and it's one that alan moore's obviously very aware of yeah in a lot of ways this whole thing is tearing down comics you know we read this essay about it was critiquing a, a, a an aspect of watchmen but like something they they pulled out was the male characters we're presented with traditionally in comics it's wolverine it's batman it's these big grizzly macho men straight as fuck and the male characters in this are like a rapist a nazi an impotent man a corporate sellout and a big blue nihilist and it's like it's it's like a giant slap in the face to traditional big comic book heroes and everything and it's it's criticizing them throughout i think and i I think all of that is is very interesting it's a wonderful piece of work it's you having read it i feel it's going to be quite fun for you watching the series because there's an awful lot of kind of deep pulls in the Mm. series that kind of relate to this like it's not a direct sequel it's kind of it's kind of a side sequel in a similar way to like doomsday clock is i guess where like obviously Mm. it's playing off where the world was set up and there are characters from 
this original in there. The important thing to know is that, like, at the end of it, someone dropped a squid on New York and yeah. kind of killed an awful lot of people, and the, the Cold War kind of ended very abruptly because yes. someone decided that the alien invaders were coming and therefore America and Russia and all these other countries needed to, to make up and not bomb each other into annihilation. <laughs> like, Ozymandias yes. wins, which is yes. one of the best kind of endings to it is that very iconic why would i explain my plan to you i did it 30 minutes ago oh so good so so good that's another thing i saw that in the movie it was like i did it 35 minutes ago and i was like that's fucking cool and i was like oh it's in the book yeah of course brilliant and also he cries in the book he is genuinely affected by what he did versus matthew good in the movie who is just giving off big super villain energy from the word go like i was when rereading it, I was like, it's kind of obvious that Ozzy is the villain and, like, was this a genuine mystery at the time? But then it's also like, is it obvious or is it just good writing in that it makes sense and it isn't a twist from out of nowhere? I do think it is slightly less obvious in the book, but, like, in the movie, it's like, he's do it. He's he's read the one, <laughs> you know, you're the villain, and then he stopped listening. <laughs> and then he just, his performance from the very first scene is a big mwahaha supervillain. And he's just so cold about it right to the end. Whereas in the book, Ozzy cries, and he's like, I have made myself feel every death. Like, I am devastated by what I've done, sort of thing. That level of humanity that Snyder has just taken away from almost all of them. So, like, I think this is our final touch on, on the movie, because I don't think there's much more to say <laughs> the movie. I think the movie's pretty bad. I rewatched yeah. it and was like, I am bored. I watched it with my partner, and she was sat there kind of going like, people like this movie? This is so... <laughs> dull and boring and I'm like I'm sat there going like, I'm reading the comic book right now and it's a masterpiece and yeah. it's astonishing that the movie they made is this incredibly dull and one of the big failings of it is the fact that they miscast about half the people mm. in the movie the three that they nail are Patrick Wilson Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Jackie L. Haley yes Jackie L. Haley looks like exactly like Rorschach it's, it's scary and obviously he gets a lot more roles off of this like I think he, Little Children was where he was known before this where he got the Academy Award nomination and he had a couple of roles before this but then after this he starts cropping up in more and more big things yeah he, he gets Freddy Krueger after this. He gets a couple of TV show spots as well where he's in stuff like Preacher and he kind of becomes a, a nerd actor. Yeah. But he's just good. And then with Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Patrick Wilson, it's just like, are these two guys just always magnetic or are they really good castings? I think they are good castings, but there is also just that element of I will watch these two in almost anything. <laughs> yeah, they're just good actors and yeah. I, I think it's very important that like Malin Ackman, Billy Crudup and Matthew Good who play... Silk Spectre, Doctor Manhattan, and Ozymandias—they're—they're they're not as interesting as anything else. Like, there's—I mean, Malin Ackerman is really good in kind of funny roles. Like, she was good in Trophy Wife. She's also funny in like Children's Hospital. Like, she's better at comedy. Whereas Billy Crudup and Matthew Good, like, I struggle to think of things that I've enjoyed them in. Almost Famous. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Crudup is good in Almost Famous. We talked about that, like how at the time of Almost Famous, like, he is constantly coming up in competition with Brad Pitt and Christian Bale and all these, like, huge name actors, and, like, he's this big, sexy sex symbol, and, like, he's the big star of the future. And then he just fizzles into nothingness, and he gets, you know, he ends up being the most robotic man in the world, and he's yeah. not even very good at it. I think it's also important to say that the three roles that they kind of mess up in this movie are the three that the TV show kind of goes out of its way to kind of rehabilitate. It's mm. it's Silk Spectre, it's, it's Dr. Manhattan, and it's Elsie Mandius. Yeah. 
well, that's that's good. And yeah. you know, Gene Smart and Jeremy Irons are great castings. And I still don't know who is playing Doctor Manhattan, and I look forward to the surprise. Right. So, <laughs> right. Watchmen movie kind of wrapped up. So let's get very briefly. Yeah. into the, the four books I made you read for this because I kind of came out and was like I'm going to do some extra reading and just kind of do mm. what other creative people have decided to do with the Watchmen universe because Damon Lindelof is someone that is very firmly aimed at my sensibilities like I love Lost I love Leftovers I Overs. quite like Lost I quite like Leftovers but Damon Lindelof is my perfect creative person and so him coming to do this is very interesting but obviously there have been many attempts to bottle mm. what made Watchmen special before this including probably the most significant first one of these is from since 1986, no one really did anything with Watchmen apart from the movie. The movie was kind of a bomb. It didn't make that much money. It doesn't help. It's an 18-rated movie. I mean, just it, just as like the MCU is kicking off, like Iron Man is the year before, Dark Knight is the year before, and they come out with this movie that 18-rated. There's an awful lot of blue penis on screen. Um, <laughs> it only makes about 50 million more dollars than its budget. It almost hits 200, but it's just kind of not really all there. So about three years after that, obviously Watchmen is still selling massively successfully well. DC announces a new initiative called Before Watchmen because who wants to touch what happens after Watchmen? <laughs> so instead, they gave us eight miniseries devoted to characters from Watchmen. Mm. And I only asked you to read two of them because all the others are bad. <laughs> bad to mediocre. Yeah, I may read them at some point out of sheer morbid curiosity, but yeah, I the two you picked for me not only seem like the only like good ones, but they seem far more up my alley, as it were. Because, I mean, the first one is Minutemen, and I adore Darwin Cook, who wrote and drew this. He wrote The New Frontier, which is potentially my favourite comic book ever. And it is very obviously influenced by Watchmen in that it is a giant... It's more Silver Age versus Golden Age, but, you know, a big passing of the baton with these old superheroes and there's a lot of supplementary material and, like, fake newspaper articles and all of this stuff. And, yeah, him doing Minutemen makes an awful lot of sense. I loved this a lot. It's fleshing out some characters who get a bit of a short shrift. Because the Minutemen are, just to give some context here, so like, the the characters in Watchmen are, they were officially the crime busters, like, 20 years ago when they've all retired. And before them were the Minutemen, who did all of this in the 40s. And I don't know if they're supposed to be parodies in the same way. I know a, a couple of them look like certain people. Like, the biggest one would be Hooded Justice, who looks like John Henry. They're, they are, like, the original team that would later inspire many of... Like, there's an original Night Owl who Dan idolizes and becomes the new night owl and silk specter's mother the original silk specter and stuff like that comedians on the team as well because he's yes. like very young when that team was formed it's and... the comedian at 17 versus in the crime busters when he's i don't know 40 50 or something like that and yeah when he, when he gets killed he's like 60 70 i don't know but yeah so it's it's the original team and it is in watchmen proper hollis mason the original night owl he wrote a book like a tell-all about the minutemen and his life in the Minutemen and he, he exposes all these secrets and this and that and the other and this this Minutemen uh, before Watchmen <laughs> is kind of him writing it in the present but then flashing back to the stories he wants to tell and it ultimately ends in a place of he heavily censors the book compared to what he wanted to write because the comedian sort of puts some pressure on him 
because the comedian ends up working for the government is the big thing like he bounces on the the superhero life he gets recruited by the government he does lots of murder in vietnam all of this good stuff oh i guess it's career in 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 minutemen but yeah and he basically comes to him he's like don't write the book you want to write or i will kill you so he heavily changes it but he leaves in comedian's attack on Silk Spectre original because fuck him in his words but the piece itself i just think is I love Darwin Cook's art style. It's so beautiful to look at and fleshing out a character like the silhouette who is a queer woman and once it comes out that she's queer in Watchmen, she is kicked out of the group and then murdered. And I think in the movie, Snyder takes the decision to write lesbian whores or something like that in blood on the wall which i don't remember if it's in watchmen but uh, yeah, i don't think uh, they ever i don't think they ever show the actual yeah. bed they just kind of say like yeah yeah and it's just really interesting like she gets this whole character where she looks like the specter or the shadow or someone like that and her relationship with her lover and hollis is like a naive boy who's in love with her and doesn't realize that she's gay and you know, there are some potentially problematic elements there where it's like lesbians as like a fetish for straight men, but I think it is actually handled quite well where Hollis comes across like, oh, what an idiot I was. The subtle acceptance of other sexualities in Watchmen, where there's an awful, and, and kind of like it, it's something that probably doesn't ring true for us in that we were reading it kind of 2009, 2010 era, I assume. And then in the original Watchmen, there's so many ancillary queer characters. Like Ozymandias is kind of queer coded. There's, yeah, Rorschach says possible homosexual. <laughs> yeah, you could argue it's problematic in that, oh, look, the villain's possibly queer coded and all these mm. different things. But there's the lesbians it, at the newsstand. Yeah. Uh, there is. Hollis in the book says that Captain Metropolis and Hooded Justice were gay. Silhouette is a lesbian. Yeah, and we and we see that in this book. We see this relationship between these two male characters. And essentially, Hooded Justice gets framed as either a paedophile or a child murderer or both by the comedian because he pissed off the government. So the comedian frames him up to look like this massive Nazi monster and then Night Owl kills him and then learns the truth and that makes him horrified to reveal it. Yeah, as, just as a piece of work, I think it is really fun. It's got a good energy. I think it gets what Watchmen was about. You know, it's not Watchmen, but I think of anything else we've read, and I haven't seen the show, so I don't know about that, but I think it is the closest thing to being like a worthy canonical part of the Watchmen universe while everything else is kind of just hanging on a bit. I mean that's fair I think it, I think it helps that Darwin Cook is obviously like one of the greatest cartoonists of all time. His art style is tremendous. Yeah. I kind of only made us read the stuff that adheres to the nine panel grid or like a <laughs> a grid system because like yeah. there are a couple of things that do an eight panel grid Like, but like I kind of flipped through the comedian Night Owl, Ozymandias, Rorschach, Dr. Manhattan little series and none of them adhere to nine panel <laughs> and the two that we read do yes and i think that's one of the core things it's like obviously you want to let the artist get free and all the rest of it but part of the fun of watchman is can you create a compelling story when you limit yourself yeah. in this kind of way and i think that's the thing is it's obviously a big ask because like sometimes you want to do like well i kind of want to have this panel on the left hand side be a different shape or encompassing different parts of it but th there's a structure to watchman that i kind of feel that like the universe has to have and <laughs> i just yeah. like that i kind of picked up all these things i really like before minutemen it's the only one that i had fond memories of like silk specter's fun <laughs> as well but it's obviously a bit more disposable i would say like minutemen is is it's fitting with the structure 
it is interesting to put a spotlight on these characters that are very in the background in Watchmen. Like, you think of them as being, like, a big part of it, but they are actually just a tiny sliver. Like, Hollis Mason is in it, Sally Jupiter is in it, but, like, it's all sort of on the sidelines. And because Watchmen is so good, people have, like, really, like, dug their teeth into it and to give the Minutemen their own shine. And I think there's even an issue where, like, each of them gets a double page or, or a full page or something. And I thought that was really, really cool. Then, yeah, to move on to Salt Spectre, which is drawn by Darwin Cook. Written no. by Darwin Cook and drawn by Amanda Connor, who's probably yes. best known for working on the, the most recent iteration of Harley Quinn. They're the yeah. ones who've, like, famously had her break up with the Joker and move away and is a lot of the basis for Birds of Prey. Like, the whole shtick with her talking to the stuffed beaver in the movie is yeah. lifted directly from this comic book and the roller derby and all these different things. Yeah. Like, Did they not co-write it i thought it was that they co-wrote it and she drew it yeah they co-wrote it and she drew it one of the the stuff i like most about it is just it's got a feminine touch and that's very obvious like it's horny it's empowering it's tasteful it's cute it's funny telling the story of a teenage lorry Um, and we see a little bit of this in watchmen and before watchmen the child version of her on the sidelines like looking in on these arguments and you know suppressing the fact the comedian is her father this is more about she is reluctantly still training and i really like there's a moment where she puts on her mother's costume and she stands in the mirror and she's like pulling the chest fabric out in front of her and doing this little like kissy pose and it's just sort of like she doesn't have the body for this and it's just like it's done in a way that like even me saying it like that i feel a little bit cringy but it's drawn in such a way that it seems authentic and fun instead of like voyeuristic and like there's there's a lot of new well I guess there's a bit of nudity, but there's a lot of, like, naked people in Yeah, this. there's there's a lot of sexuality, there's a lot of nudity, and obviously it's set in San Francisco in hippie counterculture period yes. of the 1960s. The Beatles uh, are in it, the Doors are in it, Frank Sinatra is in yeah, it. Yeah, it's pulling a lot from the passing of the torch from those kind of 1940s, 1950s rock and roll. Like, again, it's taking... Yeah this thing of the 1940s 50s heroes of Watchmen passing it on to a new band of costumed heroes in the 1960s is doing that but like with music and yeah. drug there's the subtle kind of origin story for the drug that's used by the, the knot heads in or the top knots or whatever they're called in, uh, in Watchmen yeah 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 like I they, didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah they take Katie's or whatever. <laughs> Comedian goes to get her and bring her home, and he's, like, investigating her apartment or whatever, or the house that she shares in this, like, big, happy, poly, orgy-happy family. And he picks up the, the smiley face button from her and, like, someone in the band that she lives with, like, give her a pin for their band, and it's it forms that little skull necklace that she wears on her uniform. There's all those cute things, and I like it when it's just her and her friends hanging out and in a van and in a house and just free living and, like, a mattress on the floor because they're so poor and, and, like, stuff hanging up. I like all of that, the, like, teen romp type bit. I don't really like the whole, there's a drug conspiracy plot and the Beatles and the Doors are being scolded for cultivating a fan base that's not into materialism like that part I was like okay whatever I was just just there for the slice of life like she's a 16 year old like living in a fuck house (laughs) but it's handled in such a nice way though yeah I mean it's good that it's drawn by a female artist like the nudity in this is kind of it's not salacious it's not exactly yeah there's a lot of like it's like when you see stuff on TV or, or films and it's like here it's just a naked woman versus like we know she's naked but we're not framing it like there's no upskirting going on like there is clever blocking and stuff to keep people's dignity and it's drawn that way as well she is sort of like running around scantily clad but it's never like and here it all is everyone yeah Um, here's here's the bit where you get to like openly jerk off to to this (laughs) 
Yeah, I think it is like really fun, and like I, I know you disagree, but I think that Laurie is not as well served as most of the other cast. I think Ozzy is the least well served in that he just vanishes until the end in some ways. I really liked seeing Laurie fleshed out to this degree and like giving her this sense of of agency. And, and both books, I think, do a lot to flesh out Sally as well. And, like, this idea that Sally became this sort of, like, she went full capitalist. She became a brand. She became a model. She became an actress. She sees Laurie as part of the dynasty, the Silk Spectre dynasty or whatever. I think a lot of that is stripped out for the movie, and she just comes across as, like, a bit of a vapid old chain smoker or whatever. But, yeah, I think this gives Laurie a lot, and I really like her showing up at the end to the first Crime Busters meeting, and she's, like, sizing them all up in her head, and she's she looks at Dan, and she's like, oh, I could never date someone like that. And then she looks at John, and she's, like, for him and stuff like that and yeah i just thought it was a really nice little thing i don't yeah. think it's as good as minutemen but it's fun yeah no, it, it's fun like again it's letdown is that it kind of feels obliged to do a standard kind of superhero story in the background whereas yeah. you just kind of want the slice of life fun <laughs> of what the rest of the book is and <laughs> yeah. then i mean and it's such a shame because like all the others kind of are so much more grim and dark and they got some fantastic artists uh jg jones adam andy and joe cuba jay lee lieber mayho adam hughes Juana rizzo like just hugely great artists to, to draw the other stuff but none Is of the other like night owl just like breaking people's wrists and yeah being Batman i think and... like night owl's got a thing with a, a series of prostitute murders and oh, stuff like that course, and they kind of, of get into like he starts visiting a dominatrix Okay. And like, oh, let's take the sexual stuff and make it more explicit. And it's like, yeah. it doesn't need to be any of that. And like, the, the two ones that I would recommend otherwise are Ozymandias, drawn by Jay Lee. It's the most visually different to Watchmen because Jay Lee's got this kind of very sparse, Spartan art style and it just looks really, really good. The story's kind of really boring. But the artwork's really good. And then Dr. Manhattan, which is one where basically each page will be split in half and it'll kind of say, do I do this or do I do that? And he'll kind of see both uh, angles to it. And it's, it's an interesting take on the way Dr. Manhattan sees and dealing with Schrodinger's cat and stuff like that, where both <laughs> of these could happen at the same time. But the others, I just don't bother with any of the others. Um, okay. <laughs> again, like it, before Watchmen was this like interesting attempt at copying Watchmen, but without a creator as singularly driven as Alan Moore or a collaborator as incredible as Dave Gibbons, because this really should be said again, Dave Gibbons' work on Watchmen is absolutely incredible. Yeah. And like um, he he added a lot of things in that weren't in Moore's scripting that a lot of background detail that is good for the world building like that sort of stuff beyond just like how well drawn it is he signed off on before watchman like he's an executive producer on the tv series mm. and all these little bits and pieces whereas alan moore has like i don't want to be credited kind <laughs> Fuck of <thing>. off. <laughs> <laughs> i don't care and the rest of it right so the next book we need yes. to discuss going chronologically would be an issue of a comic book uh, published in published in 2014 as part of Grant Morrison's long gestating multiversity event, which is just this kind of story where Grant Morrison decided to go like, I'm going to flesh out the 52 worlds of, of the DC universe and we'll do stories focused on each one. And one of those worlds happened to be a world in which what if the Charlton characters minus Peter Cannon... Who they didn't have the rights for. <laughs> who they didn't have the rights for, were actually doing a Watchmen-type story in their universe. Yes. It's called Pax Americana, and I did not have a great time with it. <laughs> It is dense. Grant Morrison is one of those writers who you either love him or you hate him. Yeah, and I think I hate him except for Arkham Asylum. <laughs> I generally don't jive with things that are going out of their way to be confusing. I because this is an out of sequence. It's a non-linear story. Like it starts at the end, pretty much. 
and then it, it doesn't quite work backwards, but it kind of works backwards. And, you know, you sent me something afterwards that puts it together chronologically, and I still have that. And like when I read it chronologically, I'm like, that's a cool story. But when I was reading it for the first time, I was like, I don't have a fucking clue what's going on right now. And, you know, I, I suppose there is something to be said for something that is designed to be read multiple times, and the fun of fitting that together for yourself, and reading and rereading and rereading and all of that. But as a first-time read... I was not having a good time with it. I thought it was cool that, like, here are the actual characters, not the, you know, the parodies of them. Like, it is Peacemaker, Question, Blue Beetle, Captain Atom, Nightshade, all that. And they are both drawn and written to behave more like the Watchmen crew a little bit. I'm not an expert on any of those characters. Question is probably the one I've seen the most of, but, like, I feel Question is doing all of the Rorschach mannerisms and all of that sort of stuff. And, yeah, like, that is all interesting, and it is a theoretically interesting idea that, like, what if it actually was these characters, and here's, like, a very condensed version of Watchmen, and it ends in a weird way where, like, so like basically a guy he realizes that all of life works in patterns and this like unlocks everything for him he is your Ozymandias stand-in and he comes up with a plot where he will have well he he wants to make superheroes prominent so he has Peacemaker who is comedian save George W. Bush from a terrorist attack he unveils Pax Americana which is your Minutemen crime busters stand-in whatever and Captain Atom who is Dr. Manhattan builds three towers to replace the twin towers and he has this plan where Peacemaker will assassinate him and Captain Atom will resurrect him and then people will be like oh my god superheroes are amazing we love them but something goes wrong wherein Captain Atom is like expelled from the universe they go through a black hole in his head yes and then Peacemaker does kill him but it's left and then the vice president who is Nightshade's father becomes president and it is, I think he is ostensibly behind the plot to remove Captain Atom from the universe. And then it's left unclear, will Captain Atom ever come back and resurrect him? Yeah, Could he even do that if he wanted to? There's a lot of guff in the in the sidelines where it's like, there is a universe-ending threat coming in the form of the main villain of the, the multiversity, <laughs> which you kind of don't need to know about. It's something called the Gentry, and it's coming to absorb all the universes, and it's all a big meta-universe story. But, like, Pax Americana, I, Frank quietly drew this. He is Grant Morrison's most recurrent collaborator. They drew All-Star Superman together. They did new X-Men series that kind of kicked off the modern wave of X-Men comics. They are an incredible collaborative pair. I think this book is utterly gorgeous. It's very, um, very pretty. I, I will give you that. My favourite part of it is Captain Atom doing his little... He's, like, monologuing about comic books and how you can read them... That you can read the pages in any order, and he sees life like a comic book and, like, linear narratives, and he can read our thought bubbles and this and that, and he's reading the pages in any order he wants, like... It's very obviously, it's the most Dr. Manhattan-ass thing, where, like, he sees the past and the present at once, and he doesn't take any action because it will always happen like this and all that. And it is also, obviously, very meta on comic books. Uh, I think it's slightly more on the nose than what Alan Moore was doing, but, you know, he's working in one issue. He doesn't have the time to be no, and it, all about it. He kind of purposely goes, like, I'm going to do eight-panel grids rather than nine-panel grids. The entire thing is kind of a critique on Watchmen as well, in that 
Grant Morrison famously does not like Watchmen. His early stuff was obviously very indebted to what Alan Moore was doing. They were both working at DC at very similar periods of time. Animal Man and Swamp Thing were both coming out at very similar periods of time. And Grant Morrison's Animal Man run is famously incredibly meta. Like, the final issue of Grant Morrison's run ends with Animal Man meeting Grant Morrison and then having a conversation about what the nature of life is when you're a fictional character. Brilliant. Um, But Grant Morrison, he thinks that Watchmen is kind of too cold and too constructed. And what could happen if life is different to that? Like, there is an incredible page in this book with about hundreds and hundreds of panels on it where the top half of it is so discombobulated and panels are off kilter and they don't make sense. And there's, like, a picture of a man taken from different kind of, like, close-up angles. And then there's a tree branch randomly where, like, his right torso should be. And it's just a cacophony of noise. And just, it doesn't make sense. And then, as he has the realisation that Captain Atom gives him that life is ordered, it's a comic book, there's a structure to everything, it becomes more and more ordered and boring as it gets down. And it's that kind of, like, treatise where it's like, life is interesting. Life is full of interesting diversions and things that don't make sense. And if you do something where, like, everything has to adhere to this grid then what's interesting and what happens if that goes wrong what happens you'll if see in another one of these there's hundreds of words written on the internet about this book about how the more you scratch at it the more you try and make it make sense the less it does the motivations don't make sense and all these different things and it's just this kind of like thing where grant morrison has written something that's purposely not supposed to it looks like it makes sense like you read it and you kind of go like am i too dumb to understand what's going on here that was that was my prevailing feeling (laughs) while reading it yes i often feel am i too dumb for insert name of prestigious thing yeah and then you (laughs) but then you start thinking about it you go like no this doesn't make sense but that's the entire point and it's like this is and i know you didn't jive with it but it is like one of the most acclaimed comics of all time like i sent you a list to um shelf dust recently did a top 100 issues of comics ever obviously issues of watch were on there like issue one and issue four were both very high up because they're both incredible piece of work issue four is manhattan on mars and this was above it this was above it and number three is the best comic issues of all time uh Uh... whether you agree with that is a different question but it is can an issue which is so firmly rooted in a critique of something else possibly be considered better than what it's critiquing i don't know i just I get it, he is chaotic good or whatever, I just don't like his brand of chaos, I like knowing what's happening, and like, I take the point that like, rigidly sticking to a nine panel grid and everything is perhaps too orderly and not reflective of the happy accidents of life, but like, I am actually the opposite, I kind of, I like when books or movies or film, you know, whatever, have a gimmick and it's like an exercise in, right, here's what this looks like if I strictly play by these rules, and this is what it would look like if I remix the rules like this, like, I like to think of art as project in that way and no part of comics is like life even if you make it chaotic it's still a thing that has a beginning and an end and is a finite length and comes out every month and this that and the other so like i get what he's saying but i i don't agree and i think nine panel leads to so many beautiful moments like when rorschach has broken into moloch's house and moloch is like moving around his home trying to investigate this noise it looks so so good like him moving through the panels and rorschach in being psychoanalyzed and like the nine panel makes him look so stoic as they keep cutting back to him and stuff and i think it's down to execution and i think that alan moore executes the hell out of it and i don't think that means everyone should be writing nine panel comics and like tom king is famously just doing his series of nine panel comics about a lesser known character and making them depressed and it's like 
okay, it is getting a bit much, but done well, it is great. I appreciate a lot of work probably went into this and like when I laid out the narrative linearly and then thought about, you know, how that all pieced together in the actual comic, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. But it felt like the middle chapter of something I had no context for with issue one and was setting up something that doesn't exist either. If I told you we're going to read all of Multiversity, it's only nine issues, <laughs> but I think you would hate me even more because you would get to that issue of Pax Americana and go like, this has nothing to do with any of what <laughs> came before or what comes after. Yeah. This happens in TV shows. It feels like there's an episode between episodes sometimes where like, have I skipped one without knowing it? And it, you haven't. It's just stuff is happening. And like, yeah, I I didn't like that about this. I felt like I there was it was the middle of a of a story and I wasn't getting the beginning or the end, so it left me a bit unsatisfied and it gave me a bit of a headache, quite frankly. Right. So you're saying that we're going to do a full read of Grant Morrison's DC? No, Uber. I know, I can't. No. Next one chronologically, even though it's the one that finished most recently. <laughs> yes, the two-year odyssey of Doomsday Clock, right? Yeah. yeah, DC's first official sequel. The TV show is also an official sequel to Watchmen. But, but the big thing here is, like, so they did their big rebirth story a few years ago now, where it's like, right, it's the every few years reset of all of our continuity, and it was like, a, here's two pages on every major character, and it ends with the button from Watchmen. And it was like, oh shit, they're bringing Watchmen into the main canonical DC universe. Because DC own Watchmen, but they've always left it as a separate thing completely. None of these characters have ever met Superman or Batman. And then they, money talks, and we've sat on this for however many years, let's bring them into the main universe. And that was the big premise here, is it's going to be Doctor Manhattan against Superman, it's going to be Rorschach against Batman, blah 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 blah. And they were going to bring them all over. And Jeff Johns wrote it, and, you know, he is, like, the big DC guy. Like, what was, was he editor at this point? He, like, was, what? he was, he was like, above editor. He was, like, chief creative officer for the entirety of DC Entertainment. Like, he had his fingers in everything. He was writing less and less comics. I think he only had the Justice League comic book coming up before yeah. this. Um, and he's, he like, co-writing all the movies at this point. Yeah, exactly. Like, he is, he has his fingers in everywhere. I think he's also co-writing, like, pilots for all the TV shows. And He's, like, just, the brand ambassador. <laughs> yeah, essentially. And he is someone who kind of came up through the ranks. Like, he started uh, writing stuff in the 90s. He, he had a brief stint writing Avengers at Marvel just before Bendis started. But, like, he had long runs on Green Lantern and The Flash and... Teen Titans, just kind of like someone who were generally really, really well liked in the comic industry. And obviously, as you get more and more power and you start running out of ideas, people get a bit complacent or like less interested in what you have to say. And like, DC Rebirth came out, what, May of 2016? Yeah, and I sat and read it in front of you in the staff room and (laughs) you were just giggling as every couple of pages. I was like, what? (laughs) Because I had no... (laughs) no real knowledge in depth of a lot of these characters and what they were like plucking at and you were just having the time of your life yeah because dc is like a very knotty continuity of like they have rebooted continuity four times with different events all of which are canonically have happened and layer on top of each other and four versions of every character yeah (laughs) and like the the whole revelation was after flashpoint dc decided to combine the wildstorm universe the vertigo universe and the dc universe proper into a brand new publishing initiative called the new 52 wasn't very successful or he was initially but then kind of everyone kind of got a bit sick of it and basically the whole idea behind making it interesting was what if dr manhattan was the reason why those three universes combined at the end of flashpoint 
Yes, he is pulling the strings, he is the reason things are out of whack, he made the new 52 by fucking around with stuff, and ostensibly Doomsday Clock was going to bring back the things you miss and keep anything out of new 52 that people actually like, and and that was the big premise. And yeah, Jeff Johns puts himself on the book. I, I guess he's the one who made that decision, I don't know. Like they make he's... it feel very important. It's like, right, our biggest gun is coming back, he is putting himself on the big Watchmen sequel, the big crossover, it's gonna be nine panel, it's gonna have back matter, it's a big prestige thing, it's emulating it. And the final result, it just feels like another big annual comic book event, and it doesn't even feel like a very good one of those. The Watchmen characters at times feel like an afterthought. The big premise was it's going to be Manhattan versus Superman. Superman disappears from like issue one to issue seven, and then it was like, oh shit, we forgot about Superman. So here's an entire issue just about Superman. And it doesn't have that level of meticulous structure. As I said, I tried to plot this out into the 12 bullet points, and it is so much more hazy. Like, some of them work. You know, Dr. Manhattan versus everybody, and marionettes flashback. But then some of them it's like... Joker captures Batman, Rorschach meets Mr. Thunder, like, what's actually going on in this issue. They are less satisfyingly self-contained. The back matter feels like such an obligation rather than something he's tackling with joy. They get shorter and shorter as they go. Some of them, it's like, here's the front page of a newspaper. Done. Whereas Alan Moore would have written the whole goddamn article. And there's bits of it where it's they're just reiterating points of things that they've already said in the issues. Like, the interesting thing about the Watchmen back matter is that it'll take something you've been told and then expand upon it and give you more context behind it. Or even, in one case, straight up spoiling something that happens later in the story. And, and big reveals and, like, little stuff you wouldn't have known and, like, you know, some of the stuff in Hollis Mason's book is that is canon to the universe but is not in the main thing. And the other thing is, Alan Moore made all those pieces of that matter feel like they were written by different people. He is doing an impression of a right-wing newspaper. He is doing an impression of an incredibly boring man who likes birds. He is doing an impression of all these different things. Yeah, here's, here's the kind of like left-wing bougie puff piece on, on this guy. Here's yeah. the, the, the in-depth kind of history on comic books article, which is and probably my pir- favourite one. How pirate comic books are so popular because in a world where superheroes are real, who gives a shit about comics? About yeah, them? and obviously the Black Freighter is kind of a controversial element of the original Watchmen. I think mm. the interplay it has with the main story is fascinating, and I love it's those. Gorgeous, like that's the thing. Like trying to pin it down to be one specific metaphor is missing the point. At different points, it is intersecting with different points of the story. Like there's a point where he's like. You know, it's a man who is shipwrecked, he's been attacked by this big ship, he is washed up on an island, he reluctantly makes a raft out of the corpses of his crew, tries to sail home before the pirates get to his his hometown and kill everyone he knows. He gets there, he accidentally kills his wife, they were never there, and then he joins the crew. But this descent into madness thing, and it, it, there's all these little moments like he's got the masthead of the ship and he covers its eyes and he's like touching its face and he's like this is all I know what to do for her and then in the next panel is Dr. Manhattan caressing Laurie's face and we go into this like thing about how he doesn't know what pleases her anymore he doesn't know what he can do for her anymore and there's loads of moments like that where it perfectly intercuts with what they're talking about and it's gorgeous yeah and And they do something similar here with these this Nathaniel Dusk these movies, these noiry things, and they try and do the same thing where it's like someone is, is outside of someone's room and they're like, oh, is he in there? And then it cuts to the movie where like the detectives are going into the crime scene and it's like it has so much worse. And 
the back matter, every one of those feels like they were written by Jeff Johns in the same voice, no matter who is writing them. The newspaper piece, the like info dump piece, the puff piece in the magazine, every one of them is by the same author. It just doesn't work as well. And like, yeah, that Nathaniel Dusk thing is inferior to Black Freighter. Just all of these little things are just so lesser than. And I, I yeah. almost wish he hadn't done the back matter. Or if he tapped different writers at DC to write the different pieces or something, if yeah. he didn't have it in him to do them. The Nathaniel Dusk thing is like, I think I texted you when I was reading, like, is Nathaniel Dusk their very obvious attempt to do Black Freighter? And yeah. it's just integrated so much less interestingly. You could argue maybe it comes together in issue 9. The big issue, well, issue 10 is... Uh, oh, issue 10. Yeah. Issue 10 is the best reviewed issue. It is probably the best issue of it, where... It is Dr. Manhattan finally revealing, because he doesn't even show up until issue 7, Dr. Manhattan, and he recounts his history in this universe since he arrived in it, and he has this history with this actor called Carver Coleman, who is the guy that plays Nathaniel Dusk in these movies. He met him, he saved him, he would have dinner with him once a year and tell him about what's going to happen in his life next, and he arguably made his movie career by, like giving him spoilers or whatever but like he would probably argue this was always going to happen and you're just following what happened and it is written like the manhattan on mars issue where it's like he's saying what date it is and he's saying what the next date is and it's moving non-linearly and all of that and you you asked me like when i said oh that'll all pay off you were like is john carver coleman and it's like no he's just his best friend or whatever (laughs) and that is a decent issue but like this 12-issue project that took two years to come out. Yeah, it started in November of 2017, didn't finish until December of this year. TV show finished on December 15th, so literally, like, three days later, the final issue of Doomsday Clock came out. Yeah. And the the difference in response to those two things, I think, is yeah. hugely telling. Like, the Doomsday Clock means nothing, and Watchmen is kind of one of these, like, most celebrated shows of last year. Yeah. Like, my main issue with Doomsday Clock is... On top of the fact that it's just hard to summarise, it's there's just an awful lot of DC busy work. Yeah, like the bi- the giant meeting of villains. <laughs> yeah, like it's just it's just like oh here's all these characters. It's like no no, Watchmen had this incredible ability to kind of make you care about every single character that walks by. Like by the end of the comic book when. They're all sat around the kind of the newspaper stand and they're having these yeah. conversations with all these people. Like, you know all the characters. You know how they interact and how they what they mean to each other. Yeah, because you've in, got like the big six superheroes, but then you've got, I don't know off the top of my head how many there are, but you've got these lesser characters that we've seen here and there throughout and they're coming together. Like the newspaper vendor and the kid reading Black Freighter. Rorschach's the, psych- psychoanalyst and his yeah. wife who he's having marital issues with yeah. and the taxi driver who's having a fallout with her girlfriend. Yeah. And like even... Even like down to like the guy who owns the taxi company and the yeah. two detectives who yeah. are like in charge of the comedian's murder investigation. Yeah. It's crazy and like it makes and it's why I'm t- team team squid in comparison to the movie. And I'm sure the movie does when you watch the extended cut, it does enough work with some of these characters to make it feel like New York is living and breathing. But a little bit. <laughs> but when you when you see the squid happen and issue eleven ends with kind of like the white panel and then. And the guy who's been reading the comic book and the newspaper stand guy kind of holding each other in embrace as the world literally ends around them. Yeah. It matters because you followed them for 10 issues before then. Yeah. And then and then you get the next issue, which opens with the, the six full page spreads of just destruction and bodies and blood and yeah. viscera. And it, it, it's heart destroying. And then you read this and it's like, oh, 
Black Adam is doing something somewhere to the do same with thing like, he always does. The same thing he always does. Like I've I've declared that my country is free for all people to come, and Firestorm is like apparently somehow made- one of the biggest characters in this book. Yeah, and we're using this to reintroduce the Justice Society, and we're using Saturn this to Girl. The, yeah, the Legion of Superheroes. I mean, I. I always, when I hit these big DC events, have an element of, I don't know who this person is, and they're treating it like they're supposed to be big. But, like, this is rife with that. And just so many non-consequential characters. And, like, even the Watchmen people aren't written very well. Like the So there's a new Rorschach, and it's the psychiatrist's son. And he was, like, coming home to visit them when the squid thing happened. And the people that weren't killed by the squid, a lot of them received a telepathic vision of all these alien horrors. And he is one of them, and he was institutionalized, and he befriends Mothman, and becomes the new Rorschach, and all of this. His, like, narration is slightly iffy. Ozymandias labels himself the smartest man alive, which I feel is a bit off. Like, I feel like it's something that he just sort of modestly smiles about when other people say it about him. The comedian is alive for no real reason. Like, John saved it, plucked him out of the air, brought him into the DC universe. He runs around, does a bit of violence, and then John puts him back in the air and he dies as he was meant to or whatever. All of that feels a little bit off. And It's like they came up with the idea, like, we can fix what people don't like about the DC universe by using Dr. Manhattan and we'll write a story featuring these characters. But yeah. it's still a DC event first and yeah. foremost it's not a watchman event this isn't a watchman sequel like yes they do touch on the like in the years afterwards robert redford's become president of the united states of america but the ozymandias like using the alien squid has leaked and the world is heading towards nuclear disaster in fact they blow up the watchman world they do and they escape it at the last second yeah at the last second and so i mean the entire thing ends with this kind of nonsense of yeah they're building towards superman and manhattan confronting each other for 11 issues they finally meet Superman changes his mind in about five seconds and convinces him to take action. This is enough to change John's entire worldview. He takes the child of... They introduce these two new characters who are from the Watchmen world, Mime and Marionette, who I actually think are pretty cool, even if you are playing in this Joker wheelhouse of everyone has to be circus-related or whatever. But they have a kid that goes missing. Manhattan took him, raised him, called him Clark gives him his powers when he dies, and then Clark goes and knocks on the door of Laurie and Dan's house. I'm sure they will use this at some point, but that they haven't followed up on it, because that was the idea. It was like, I swear they pitched this as we're bringing Watchmen canonically into DC. And it's like, I don't want a monthly series of the Crime Busters and the ongoing stories of them, and they exist and they meet the Justice League or any of that. But like, it feels so pointless, and they just sort of, they show up, they have a brief encounter... Off they go. There is a kid that has got the powers of Dr. Manhattan and is called Clark. They've established that the universe literally revolves around Superman. (laughs) It's just bad. I think it's a giant failure. The fact it took so long to come out, they put a date on it at the start. And then while this is coming out, so much happens canonically. Like, Alfred fucking died in Batman. And he's still in Doomsday Clock right to the end. And it's yeah, like... I think I think the other issue is there's a lot of stuff that was kind of waiting for them to finish before they could kick it off in the comics. Like, yeah. Wally West has inherited the powers to, to Dr. Manhattan is, like, the latest wrinkle that's happened oh. after this. And they had to wait until after all this nonsense happened because, like, the button came out fairly quickly yeah. after that first rebirth event. It's... <sighs> this is bad. And I, the it's things I like about it were when it kind of was very wholeheartedly a DC event and kind of talking about the history of DC Comics. And it was like the Superman stuff in the final issue where it's like, here's all the changes that have happened to Superman's history over the time. And it's like, I like this. 
Mm. I like this kind of meta commentary, and like I think like some of the stuff in the final issue is probably my favorite. Issue ten is probably the best issue overall. But the fact you have to get through nine issues worth of just nothing to get yeah. to this point just it's bad and maybe yeah. my least favorite thing that we did and it was so annoying because it was the last thing i read because it was the one thing i <laughs> read before all the way through and i was like i was on such a high like reading watchman and i do really like pax americana and i really like the book we're going to discuss next but to finish with this yeah it's just depressing. It's like, dragged it, it, out for so long, and I was subscribed to it, so I was getting them every two to three months, or however long it took. And like, it was just death by a thousand cuts, like such a slow death of this event that's yeah. really boring. And it's just, and it's fascinating to see. Like, the Wikipedia page has got like a list of reviews, and if you average them out, they're probably about like an eight point five as an average score. And I'm sort of going like, this is like a one-star book, two-star book at best. Yeah, these people are high. There's one really good issue, and like, a couple of fun moments across yeah. 12 issues in two years. That's... And maybe it's because, like, we're reading, like, we read the canonical, like, greatest work of the comic medium yes. before we read it, but yes. yeah, this was just... I mean, and uh, so, uh, Gary Frank's work is great. Yeah. Like, the book looks good. I was very annoyed, though, because, like, even though it was sent to it's a nine-panel grid, this book just kept on breaking the rules and like there was one page i said it was like this is a 12 panel grid this is not <laughs> this is not how you do it like you can do yeah. the occasional four panels on the line if you've got a bit more information but by the end it's just like yeah you're not even trying at this point to yeah. to do watchmen bad disappointing yeah. sad i read it however the opposite is peter cannon thunderbolt <laughs> yeah so the one character that dc do not have the rights to i think he was briefly there for kind of the early 90s all this weird stuff where like some people own different rights to different characters where dc owns certain people and they've got agreements whereas uh, peter morrissey the creator of peter cannon maintained the rights and i think the estate handled them for him and at the moment the the comics lie with dynamite entertainment not with dc and so last year kieran gillen teaming up with casper uh, wingard uh, mary jo Safro, and hassan he does a fantastic uh, series of explainer comic videos on the internet called um, Strip Panel Naked. Watch that stuff, uh, the letterer. He is great. Yeah, they did a series based around Peter Cannon, but kind of taking it as, what if we did Peter Cannon, but as a critique of Watchmen? Like, we are going to examine what Watchmen means, what it would happen to, like, what it would take for someone like Peter Cannon to do what he does, and what it meant for comics, and what it meant for kind of British comics in particular. And... Yeah, this book is a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I jive far more with Kieran Gillen than I do with Grant Morrison. It, I know it's a different artist, than, but I feel he loves to pick artists that do very bright colours and very clear character designs, and, and it's all very clean. And yeah, it has that same energy as a Wicked and Divine, as a Young Avengers, as you know all of his other work. And I don't like completely adore it, but it was a heck of a lot more fun than Doomsday Clock and Pax Americana were for me. He's made it gayer, obviously. He can't help himself. <laughs> Everything um, must be gayer. I really liked... Have you got the version where it's like his pitch at the back? I think I've read the pitch, but I don't have that version, because okay. I've, I've read them in single issues. Okay, so like Taboo, his manservant slash lover, when they were coming up with the design, he asked the artist, do you know Dream Daddy? 
and uh, that's, that's how they drew Taboo. Dream Daddy, for anyone who doesn't know, is a dating simulator for... Uh, I think everyone is gay in it. I like it. it. It kind of starts at the end of Watchmen. I mean, it's another set of characters that are obvious analogues to the Charlton Watchmen ones. Uh, it's like the test instead of the question and, you know, all these other people. And it's like... They stop the alien invasion at the end, and then your Ozymandias version, you know, Peter Cannon, he realises, oh, I must have done this in a different universe. Let's go find me and stop me and all of this. And it's like, you know, it's not designed to be a large thing. Like, it's a, it's very clearly designed to be a small little project, so it moves very rapidly. It's got a good pace to it, and, like, it's really fun, and stuff where it ultimately gets into, like, nine-panel grid. Peter Cannon's ability to move beyond the nine panels and go between the panels and all of this stuff is how he beats the alternate version of him and nine-panel grid literally kills the villain and stuff like that and, you know, he says lines like these are the dangers of unrelenting deconstruction and please can we try something else and all of this sort of stuff. I thought all of that was really clever and fun. There's the big issue where, like, it's the mundane universe and it's all black yeah. and white and i th- i want to like that more than i do i feel it's referencing stuff that i don't get but... yeah so it's drawn in the style of eddie campbell who was alan moore's co-collaborator on from hell but he has a, a series of semi-autobiographical stories called the alex stories alex the years it have pan which is there's literal panels that straight up recreations and obviously like all the people in the bar are designed to be people from watchmen and alan moore is there as dr zed and, oh, okay. And and like there's Dan and Laurie in the bar, except they're not called Dan and Laurie. They're called Daniel and Lauren. And Eddie, the failed comedian, who's actually like a an artist, is designed to be both Eddie Campbell and the comedian. And I feel very stupid right now because all of that is very obvious now. You're saying it, but I was just like, what? What are we yeah. doing here? And and that's the thing is like the book is very consciously a deconstruction of Watchmen. It's kind of talking about how British comics in particular, like each issue is kind of based around the stylings of a different British comic writer. Like the first issue is based around Warren Ellis, who does these kind of like big widescreen comic books. He did the authority uh, that led on to the Ultimates and kind of changed the visual language of comic books. And it's got this huge alien invasion. Issue two is Grant Morrison. It's an issue in which Peter Cannon draws six panels on the floor and they use that to deconstruct the universe. They can travel between the universes. And it's all about... That's a beautiful series of panels where like they are on the six panel grid and then they start floating between the panels of the comic we're reading like that's really really clever yeah issue three is mark miller's issue who is very famously like the writer of the civil war and the ultimates and is just hyper violent like there's a, a line that referencing his very famous moment in the ultimates where captain america points at the air on his forehead and goes what do you think this stands for france um, <laughs> yeah except it's their comedian stand in pointing at the symbol on or peter cannon's head and then headbutting him in it because it's just ultra violent and people explode yeah and he um, slaughters the whole team and, yeah and yeah. it's and it's kind of talking about like these are three creators obviously massively influenced by what watchman did like warren ellis grant morrison and mark miller all massively working in the superhero genre in the, the, the wake of watchman and what they did and how they differed and what they learned and all the rest of it and then issue four is the slice of life story and it's like there's other stories that you can tell with this medium like we don't need to be grim dark deconstructions of what the superhero genre needs to be we can be a story about six friends sat in a pub having a drink and it's that how he beats the villain at the end is this kind of knowledge that like you've mastered how to tell a story told in nine panel grid but that's just one kind of story exactly and there's so many other stories that you can tell and i just want to do a special shout out to the lettering on it like hassan's lettering is 
absolutely incredible. Like I laughed with glee and actually had to tweet him congratulations because like the first issue ends with the revelation of Peter Cannon in a different universe, kind of like watching over this. And when they get to that universe, the the lettering is done in the exact same style as the Watchmen comic. Just the lettering is so good and so intelligently done yeah. that I can't help but applaud it. It's fun. I don't think it's the deepest, but I do think there's a lot of stuff beneath the surface that's just kind of like really interesting to scratch at. And it's also uh, Kieran Gillen fucking loves Watchmen. I think you once sent me him doing like a 30 minute talk on why Watchmen is brilliant and he throws in these lines like how did the cool one in the shit movie put it even in the face of Armageddon I will not compromise my absurdity (laughs) it's just very clear I like Watchmen the book I don't like Watchmen the movie and it's like I feel it is simultaneously a love letter to Watchmen and a sort of hey everyone Watchmen did it perfectly everyone can you stop and like he even says in the pitch like people have been picking the bones of Watchmen for 30 years and stuff like that and then also kind of a we need to move past it we need to do different things and uh, yeah to do that in five issues that move with such rapidity is kind of impressive and like he pitched it as a six potentially and maybe it could have done with another one but then I think it is so tight so yeah yeah. I I think I was like when I read about it I thought it was going to be 12 issues I thought it was going to be like a, a proper kind of panel, 12 issues and yeah <laughs> that's the other thing is like one of my favourite moments in the comic book is I think it's issue 5 when he breaks back into to Peter Cannon's Watchmen universe and he's walking along and there's one page with four panels and he kind of like notices and goes like oh a crack in the universe mm. there's a fault to this and it's explicitly riffing on the, the same four panel spread of Rorschach yeah. coming back into the universe in issue 1 which is also four panels at the bottom of the page it's not perfect there are tiny flaws here that we can exploit and then it ends with a big old gay kiss because it's Kieran Gillen of course they all have to be gay all the time and I support that so a lot of different things they're all riffing on critiquing adding to Watchmen all of this a giant preamble to the the TV show that we will start from next week maybe not everyone is huge into comic books and this may all wash over your head but I think it is important to acknowledge that like the show like all of these books is a another piece of media that is riffing on Watchmen and like all the different ways different people have interpreted Watchmen and how some people have taken the wrong messages some people have been like you know even Grant Morrison being like yeah fuck it it's too organized and all of that so I think it is important to acknowledge all of that also just to say again Watchmen may be the best comic ever and and like we I've heard enough people talk about it like I remember you didn't want to reread it in your, your episode with Mike. I think I thumbed through it. But it's very much like a thing where like, if you don't know comic books, maybe you aren't, you can't kind of see what it's doing. And yeah. you can argue that's a failing. Like I should be able to see any piece of media and go like, wow, this is a, a work of genius. But there is something yes. about Watchmen that like, a knowledge of how comic book text work makes it better. Yes. For sure. Like, if you're not a big comic book reader and you just pick up Watchmen and you read it as just as it is, with no historical context of the medium or the characters he's riffing on... And... Or even just how comic books work to yeah. read them. Yeah, exactly. Like, I understand if you aren't completely blown away by it. And, I, you know, it's, it's starting to sound a bit like we're being gatekeepery about it and, like, you must have X amount of knowledge... Otherwise, you're an idiot and you don't get why this is bad. Yeah, you can completely get what you need to get out of Watchmen on the first read. It was my first comic book, for God's sake. 
and it's your favourite comic book, right? It's up there. I think Fables, the first like seventy five issues, is probably my favourite comic book ever. But like, yeah. watching well, it's definitely like. Well, top. for me, I have that like emotional attachment to New Frontier, even if I acknowledge side by side, Watchmen kicks New Frontier's ass. It's just there's something about New Frontier that is just like warmer for me. Yeah, like it's it's more your style and yeah. like worldview, whereas like Watchmen is fundamentally quite nihilistic. It is, yes. Uh, I don't hate it for being like that. Obviously, New Frontier is a more optimistic book. Uh, a lot of the little elements are for me. But yeah, Watchmen, very good. Not just some comic, not just it's okay. Should we do a ranking before we wrap up? Yeah, okay. Okay, so we'll include the movie in there. Do you want to go first? Okay, top to bottom or bottom to top? Top to bottom. Top to bottom, so Watchmen, <laughs> the book. <laughs> Minutemen. <sighs> we'll, we'll only do Minutemen, we won't, or we'll do before Watchmen, so like with such oh, as well. Yeah. Okay, well, Minutemen and Silk Spectre, Peter Cannon, the movie Pax Americana, Doomsday Clock, I think? I definitely like the movie more than Pax Americana and Doomsday Clock. Okay. Yeah, Doomsday Clock on the bottom, Pax Americana, the movie, Peter Cannon, before the original book. Okay, alright. My number one, surprising no one, Watchmen. <laughs> it's yeah. it's like one of the greatest pieces of work ever. Number two, Pax. Uh, I just think Pax works really well and it's just what I don't know like if you don't like Grant Morrison I completely understand that but there's okay. something about the craft and the level of like intelligence to it that I can't not yeah. appreciate my number three also is Peter Cannon Kieran Gillen's obviously a writer that I gel with like he's very similar to Damon Lindelof where like, I will read anything by this person and enjoy it same I'm gonna put before at number four okay part of that is coming from like I've read a lot more before <laughs> and some of it's pretty bad yeah giant asterisk there I'm only talking about those two issues and I'm predominantly talking about Minutemen uh, and I haven't read the others that I understand are yeah. garbage to okay yeah and like the only reason that it exists above the movie is because like Minutemen is wholly successful or like it, it, at least more successful in kind of like understanding what Watson's about the movie at number five because god it's boring and dull and doesn't understand it but at least it isn't full of just kind of pointless guff from a different universe that isn't anything to do with the original one because doomsday clock was a painful read yes there you go i finished at 2 a.m on my birthday so we've got the same one three and six right yeah (laughs) okay and then we just differ on uh, two four and five yeah there you go. Yeah, so we'll probably include a reading list with this. If you want to read along or read anything, like if anything we've talked about has been interesting to you at all, I'll make sure that those are up with uh, links to Comixology or to Amazon or however we want to do it. Yeah, so yeah, this okay. has been episode one of Nothing Ever Ends. Next week we'll be back covering episode one and episode two of the Watchmen TV series. It's be very similarly structured to Countdown to Destruction in that we'll cover two episodes in each one, but because there's only nine episodes, we decided we'd give a bit more time to the finale in that final episode on its own. Yep. I will be making Matt read the back matter that's on the website. As God, well. is there? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. uh, there's the PT files that came out every week after the episodes, uh, which, you get, okay. which you have to look forward to. And I'm really excited to watch this again, even though it's only been kind of four months since the show wrapped up. Like, I'm excited to dive back in. Because... And I'm still shocked I've stayed so spoiler-free. I like, know. I know, I know, like, a couple of tiny little bits, but they're pretty inconsequential to the overall plot and what happens. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting on that. Except... And just, like, uh, Countdown, I will only have seen what we're covering that episode whereas you've obviously seen it all so i will watch episode one and two stop we'll record and then i'll watch three and four stop yeah yeah and it's it's partly why i'm kind of hosting this little mini series because i can kind of guide the conversation in interesting avenues rather than let matt kind of burrow into (laughs) cul-de-sacs that aren't pay off in any way (laughs) which didn't happen in countdown to destruction at all i don't know what you're talking about so Yeah. yeah 
Cool. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. All very important. Obviously, we've got other podcasts on the Real World Network. There's Superhero Pantheon, which is still running. Real Bad, first week of every month. And thank you for listening. But we'll nothing end- ever ends, Ben. That's the genius of the show. It never ends. So, thank so you, you're bro. saying that you want me to have like an hour of silence at the end of this? Yes, I think a three-hour podcast on comic books is much better than a two-hour one. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Don't, no, 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 Vito, we can't explain how DC works. No, no, I'm just, I'm very brief. (laughs) Okay.